Well, good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, is there some people missing? I don't know if they're, they're probably missing because of Father's Day. I hope it's not because I told them they better be back here because we were going to be preaching on holiness or part two of the message from last week. I also said I would go to their homes if they weren't here. So boy, I have a lot. I'm going to be busy this week. Um, but anyway, glad you're here and uh, hopefully they'll be able to pick up this message via the internet. But uh, we're in First Peter chapter 1, looking at verses 13 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to grab one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seat around you, possibly. You can use that. Turn to page 1014. That would bring you to the text that we're in. Well, we begin this sermon, or this message last week, as I said, and I wasn't able to finish it. I probably got a little carried away, but in a good way, and so we're back at it again. I'll do a little bit of review. Obviously, can't address everything we talked about last week. I want to welcome you if you're new with us. Met, met a few new folks this morning and uh, just invite you to check us out and learn more about us and pick up that free gift after the service is over. Come up and talk to us if you'd like as well after the service. So I was going to address uh, this morning the Orlando, Florida issue just in my introduction and as a way to lead into uh, the subjects of hope and holiness, but I'm actually going to put that off this morning, but I will come back to it. just wanted to let you know that. So I will say something about that, and speak to that issue probably next week. But this morning, I want to save a little more time just for addressing our text, so let me talk a little bit of review here. So we looked at these verses, and I mentioned this last week, that as I was doing my study, one uh, pastor, who also preached from this passage, had said that uh, he knows of no text that needs to be burned into the minds of Christians more than 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. I said, I said that's pretty significant, and, and after I studied the text and looked at it myself, I would tend to agree with him. A very important passage in God's Word. It's all important, but certainly one that you don't want to miss, and maybe you'd want to commit to memory, uh, commit to meditation, and uh, for all the reasons that we talked about last week and the reasons we'll talk about this week as well. Basically, two primary commands in the section, or imperative verbs, I told you, imperative verbs, there's just two of those. Uh, it's a specific order or uh, command to follow, and that is set your hope. That's the first imperative verb that we find, uh, and specifically, it's or more specifically, I would say, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you, or the grace that is to come, okay, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the second command, primary command, imperative verb, is be holy, and Peter adds, in all your conduct, in all your conduct. So, set your hope, be holy. And as I told you last week, everything else in the passage supports these two uh, commands, these two imperative verbs. And so, bottom line, I'll just tell you up front, as I told you last time, the Christian life then, your Christian life, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, a Christian is to be a life of steadfast hope and a life of personal holiness, okay? Steadfast hope, personal holiness. Christians should be striving, then, to be obedient in these areas because it doesn't happen automatically. It'd be so awesome if it did, but it doesn't. They're commands. They're something that we must willfully come under submit to, and obey, okay? And, and to the degree that, and I said this last time, this is why this passage I think is one reason it's so important, to the degree that we fail to obey those commands, then the Christian is unnecessarily distressed and troubled, unnecessarily. I mean, we're already going to have a distress and trouble in our life, but we're inviting more into our lives if we fail to have steadfast hope and to be holy, okay? We're inviting more trouble into our lives, more distress. And when we fail, or to the degree that we fail to obey these commands, the church that's made up of believers is weakened. It's weakened. And its testimony to the world is marred, okay? or blemished, and most importantly, our God is not exalted and honored as He should be when the church does not live up to these commands as they should 
Keep your hope fixed. Be holy. All right? So very important. The most important of that, like I said, was God is not honored as he should be when we fail to live up to these things. So we need to know what Peter is commanding us to do, what actually God is commanding us to do, and, and then we need to do it. Pretty simple. So I'm going to read the whole 16 verses. I did this last time. I'm going to do it again because verse 13 begins with the word therefore. So it follows verses 1 through 12. In other words, he says what he says in 13 through 16 because of what he said in verses 1 through 12. This time I'm not going to make any comments on verses 1 through 12. So if you missed it last time, I invite you to go back and listen to part 1. And obviously we've worked through this whole section of God's word carefully, but I was last time making a few... uh, running commentary notes as we went. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to read it, and then we'll get to 13, and then we'll start diving back in again, all right? So if you would, uh, take, a, take a gander at God's Word there that you might have in your lap, or it'll show up here on the screen, and follow along with me as I read it, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according, that is, they are elect or chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in or through the sanctification of the Spirit, for, that is, they are elect or chosen, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, here we are. Verse 13. Therefore, so I told you this before. So, in other words, since these things are so, all the things that Peter just talked about, therefore, you should do this. Set your hope on the grace that is to come and be holy in all you do. That's basically it. But then there's some other stuff that is said around that. Okay? Based on what I just told you, this is what you should be doing in light of that. So he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. All right? This is review now. These two activities are related to the first command that he's about to give, which is set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. That's the second primary command. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. All right, you ready? 
good. That's good. <laughs> All right. So let me just remind you of a few things, and, uh, and then we'll get into the new material. Those phrases, preparing your minds for action, this might help you even if you were here last year just to hear it again, or last year, last week, uh, for you to hear it again maybe in a different way. That phrase, specifically, preparing your mind for action, remember, literally, it actually says in the text, girding up your, the loins of your mind, girding up the loins of your mind or binding up the loins of your mind. We talked about that. That would have been totally understandable in that culture because they wore these robes, and so the, it became a way of... You might say someone, gird up your loins, which is to pull up the ends of your robes, tuck it into your belt, uh, so that you might be removed, whatever could entangle you as you prepare to enter into some type of action, whether it be work or duties of whatever sort or war, military, gird up your, your loins. But here, Peter takes that phrase that was common to them in their culture, and he says, not gird up your loins, but gird up the loins of your mind of your mind. He applies it to the mind. So metaphorically, uh, the idea is that there's this, these things that might be hanging around, you know, in your mind, and you got you to gotta gird them up. You got to uh, remove those things that might entangle you so that you can, that's the way you prepare yourself to act. Act in what way? Act in setting your mind fully on the hope of the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the first phrase. And then being sober, that one and the other one, preparing your mind for action or girding up the loins of your mind, uh, literally, both those phrases help believers understand how they can set their hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed. Okay, so they're both, they're both looking to that. Here's how you do it. Okay, they're the means to this. You must prepare your mind for action, and you must be sober-minded in order to set your mind fully on the grace that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ, okay? And we, we, we addressed all that, but let me just say, in order to set your mind fully then on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you must be disciplining your mind. You must be disciplining your mind or girding it up or preparing it for action by not allowing it to be entangled by any thoughts or speculations that might hinder you from the action of setting your hope fully on the grace that is to come, okay? So, as I said, we've got thoughts hanging around our mind, and they can get in the way of us. If we don't prepare our minds for action, this action, they can get in the way of us of fixing our hope fully on these things, okay? So, uh, maybe... Maybe you can understand this, but we can easily, if we don't discipline our minds, we can easily become preoccupied or consumed with the things of this world, i.e., uh, retirement, okay? So is it, is it okay to, to, to have thoughts about retirement? Yes, okay? But if we're not careful, okay, those things can consume us, those thoughts that are kind of dangling around can consume us, they could certainly even make it more difficult for us to fix our hope fully on the grace that is to come, retirement, vacations, uh, homes, and I'm not talking about the home that you'll have in the kingdom, but, you know, homes here, uh, uh, the future of the economy, okay? You guys ever think about the future of the economy? How about the future of your own economy? You ever think about that? Probably all the time. I bet you you do. Uh, health, your health. Politics, my goodness, there's one, okay? So is it, is it, is it okay to consider and think about? You bet, you know, you, I would encourage you to think about those things, to consider those things, but you have to be careful because those thoughts that are kind of lingering on your mind can begin to become all-consuming, and so I need, to, I need to be disciplined myself to kind of remove those things or at least pull them up out of the way so that I can fix my mind fully. Remember we talked about that? There's no half-hearted fixing, all right? There's a full fixing on the grace that will be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Okay? And you must remain sober-minded. This is both things. Or, remember I told you, that can, you can interpret that clear-headed. Clear-headed. So we must not let our minds become intoxicated by the attractions 
of this temporary world. Temporary. And, and, and thereby, when we do that, lulled into like a spiritual drowsiness and become numb or insensitive to the glorious and eternal things that God has in store for us as believers in Jesus Christ. You hear me? So, you got to gird up the loins of your mind. You got to prepare that mind for action. You got to discipline that baby. You got stuff hanging around that gets in the way of you. Move it out of the way. Prepare that mind for action. Prepare it to fix itself fully on that grace. And you got to be sober-minded. You got to be clear-headed. You can't be be letting yourself be lulled into this, this basically numbness that the attractions of this world uh, can have on you if you give yourself to them, okay? Doesn't mean you can't enjoy the world, but there's a way that we can approach the world where we just begin to become consumed by it, and it's a passing away. It's foolishness to, to let that be the focus of my life. So be clear-headed, be sober-minded, and gird up those loins and set your hope fully on the grace that is to come, okay? And yes, amen. And the result of obedience to this command, that is fixing your hope fully on the grace or salvation that will be brought to you, will not only lift you above your present circumstances, beloved. Huh? How do I get out of this funk? Fix your, prepare your mind, be clear-headed, and fix your hope on the grace that is going to be brought to you child of God, at the revelation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It lifts you above your present circumstances, and it strengthens you in your troubles. You don't need medication. You need to obey the Word of God. If you understand what I'm saying. And yet many, many, many are turning to meds to deal with the troubles of this world. And that doesn't, by the way, that doesn't make them go away. It just really clouds you. It kind of makes you numb to them. It really makes, you, it makes it even harder to be sober-minded and clear-headed. The Word of God has the answers. It always has had the answers. We just actually have to turn to it and believe it and surrender our lives to it, come under it. And you think about the context here, right? Remember historically? The people that, the Christians that Peter's writing to are suffering. And not just like general suffering, okay, that everyone experiences, but they're suffering specifically because of their faith, because of their proclamation of Jesus Christ, because their their adherence to his lordship, and, and they're living that out, and the world that's hostile to Christianity and to Christ is hostile to Christians, to one degree or another. And as they lived that out like they were, they were experiencing that hostility. And they were suffering. They were being persecuted. Okay? And so he says, do whatever you can to get out of your situation. No, he does not say that. He actually doesn't say that. You're not going to find that. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. Run. Run as fast and far away from the trouble as you can. No, he says, fix your hope. Set your hope. Because where are you going to go and get away from the problem, huh? Not in this world. Okay? So, it rises you above your circumstances. It gives you strength in your troubles. But beyond that, beloved, when you obey this command, it will also impact your affections, your desires, your priorities, and your goals in this life so that you might better honor the Lord with your life. It impacts those things for God's glory when you're fixing your mind on what is to come according to the Word of God. I I would say this, it it, it would even spur you on to evangelism. People go, you know, I I don't know, I just, you know, I I don't know why I don't feel the urge to uh, share my faith. I've heard that. Stop praying for an urge to share your faith, okay? Like, like that's what you have to wait for some feeling inside to share your faith. Instead, do this. Fix your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you, the impact it will have is it will cause you to begin to desire to tell people about the one who is coming. 
Because as you fix your hope on these things, you realize the only one who are going to experience all the wonders and glories of this salvation are those who have given their lives to that one who is bringing it to them, right? And you look around, you realize that's not for those who do not profess him as Lord and Savior. And all of a sudden, your heart becomes convicted, and you become concerned, and you say, they need to know about this one. Why? Because you're not fixing your eyes on this world, this temporary world, and all of its messes, and all of its stuff, but you're fixing your eyes on that, which is to come. And then it changes your perspective in this current situation. You look at people even differently. Those are, those are souls that are, that are not yet rescued from the wrath that is to come. You think about your glory, but as you think about that glory, you must also think about everything else that comes with it, the judgment of Jesus Christ, which we were reading about this morning in Revelation. All right? It'll also compel you towards holiness because uh, that grace that is coming, that salvation that is coming is a righteous kingdom, right? Not only that, it's the glorification of you. It's the perfection of you, the removal permanently of all remnants of your fallen nature and sinfulness. If that's your destiny, if that's, if that's what's coming, then it automatically causes you to think about those things. If holiness is your goal, then you live toward that goal now priorities. You know, like, okay, what am I going to do with my life? All right? Things like that. If my, if my mind is not fixed on the grace that is to be revealed, then who knows where I go with that? I'll have all kinds of different directions I go. But when it is fixed on those things, how do you think that might impact that? I don't know. Maybe I should be living for the eternal state instead of this temporary one that's going to be burned up anyway. Maybe, I, maybe, maybe that causes me to do things that I wouldn't normally have done. Maybe make decisions in, in my career or where I live or, you know, what I get involved with. It changes your priorities. It changes your desires. It changes your affections for the glory of God. Now, that's all that, okay? But now we really get to have fun because we're commanded in this text not only to set our hope fully on the grace to come, but as we anticipate and wait in hope for our righteous Lord's return, we are to strive, and here's how we do it, not in our own strength, okay? But we are to strive by believing the truths of the gospel, everything that we've learned about the gospel and what it says about us who are in Christ, and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, who we have if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are to strive to live holy lives. Okay? What does that mean? Or you could say morally upright lives, righteous lives, pure Pure lives, undefiled lives, or to put it another way, we are to live lives separated from sin and devoted to God. Be holy. Separated from sin and devoted to God. And beloved, we are to pursue holiness right now. Not like someday, like, you know, someday I'll get around to that whole holiness thing. You know, I'm good, you know, me and Jesus are good, and, you know, I'll work up to it. I just don't have the time, or it's not really the focus of my life right now. Eventually, I'll, I'll do the holy thing. No, no, it's right now. It's as a believer in Jesus Christ who is fixing their hope on the grace that is revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. They are to right now, as they're doing that, be holy. Live lives separated from sin and unto God. You with me? It's not like a... You know, because some people, and I say that because people, they've, they've been confused about this. Like, okay, so I become a Christian, and then some point in my life, I do something, sometimes people call this a holy hop. Whoop! I do a holy hop, and now, like, something happened to me in some experience or something, and I can, I can live holy now. No, no, no. Uh, if you're born again, you can obey this command, and you must. 
right now. You don't have to wait for something. You don't have to pray for a special blessing or some empowerment of the Spirit to live a holy life. You have the Spirit, and you've been commanded by God as his child to be holy. You with me? So don't wait. Do it right now. No, right now. Do it right now, okay? So whatever unholy thought you're thinking, repent of it right now, if you are, you know, and be holy, okay? So look back at the text. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says this, as or like, that's how one translation puts it, as or like obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, all right? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's really simple. It really is. And here, like I told you last time, in verse 16, Peter cites Leviticus, the Old Testament, to reinforce the command here to be holy. And really, that just demonstrates that holiness has always been God's will for his people. Okay? It's not something new. When he called the nation of Israel unto himself, what did he tell them? Be holy. Okay? In Christ, those who are his people, be holy. Nothing's new. Nothing's changed. It's still the same. That is his desire for his children because he himself is holy. So he desires them to be holy as his kids. One writer says, a couple writers say this, God is described as holy. Holiness embraces purity and moral integrity. Those called to be God's children are to be like him. Another one, quote, the characterization of God as holy embodies a basic biblical teaching concerning the nature of God as holy, he is separated from all that is morally impure and evil. As holy, he loves all that is pure and good. Stop right there, stop right there, don't read, don't read, okay? Just I want to tell you something. He loves all that is pure and good. Beloved, he's the one that defines what is pure and good. I just want to, I know you probably know that, but I want to restate it, all right, so that we're all on the same page. He defines it. It's the creator's standards, not the creation's standards. We're the created, okay? It's not our standards that matter. It's God's standards. Guess what? His universe, his rules. That's how it works. He's God. So he tells us what is good and pure and what is impure, what is evil, right? So he loves all that he says is pure and good, according to his, how he defines it. And rightfully so, because he's holy, hates, abominates, and, abominates and punishes all that is sinful. As himself infinitely holy... God's redemptive purpose is to deliver fallen humanity, that's us, from sin and all unholiness. Beloved, we said, we've talked about this before, and as we move through Romans, it came up over and over again. God saved you, if you are saved this, this uh, morning. He saved you to be holy. That is, he saved you to be holy. He, he, he saved you to set you apart from sin and to set you apart unto himself and righteousness, okay? He didn't just save you to get you out of hell. He saved you to be holy as he is holy. And I think, I was thinking about this, and this is where I want to, you know, ruffle some feathers this morning. I think there's confusion about holiness. There's probably many reasons, but here's one. Because... um, you know, our message in evangelism has maybe confused people. So let me explain myself. Evangelism, calling people to come to Jesus Christ. So you may have heard this. I may have even said it. I don't know. They'll, something will go like this. It'll say, speaking to those, inviting them to come to Christ, they'll say, come as you are. Come as you are. He loves you just as you are. Has anybody ever heard that? Come as you are. He loves you just as you are. Okay. First, let me explain why someone, people 
pastors, evangelists, people, you might have said that, says, come as you are, he loves you just as you are. In part, what we're trying to push back against is the idea that you come to Jesus after you clean yourself up, okay? That's not how you come to Jesus. You do come in your messed up state in repentance. You're repenting of your messed up state, but you don't have to first clean yourself up, you know, ooh, that was weird, clean yourself up, clean yourself up morally, get, get yourself, you know, make sure you, you know, go do all these good deeds first, and then it's okay to come to Jesus. No, no, it's because of all your wickedness, your badness, your sin, okay, that you come to Jesus, and in him you find redemption and salvation. So the appeal is, you don't wait, you don't, you don't get there by working your way there, you're not going to merit this favor of God, you're just going to come, I get that, and that's why that's said, okay? Here's the problem, though, with, with the way I think that's being taken or could be taken. Come as you are, yes. He loves you just as you are. I would disagree with that final statement. Here's how I would say it more biblically. He loves you in spite of who you are. He does not love you as you are. That is a messed up definition of love that then allows that kind of statement to be said. Okay? So let me explain. We've talked about love, right? Biblical love, what is it? Well, I've defined it as a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. It's not some sentimental, ooshy-gooshy whatever. That's not biblical love. That's affection. That's a lot of things. That's romance, okay? But biblical love is what I just said. It's, and, and part of that, a big part of that is seeking the highest good of the one loved. God does love us. And he does call us to come unto him. And because he loves us with this kind of love, his desire for us is to not sin, to be holy, to repent, to turn away from wickedness and evil because it destroys, it's destructive, it ruins. God doesn't say, hey, come on in and you can just stay the way you are. I'll just keep, you know, rubbing up against you. What? You know God says, come in, and I'm going to change you because I love you. And the way I change you is by giving you my spirit, giving you my word, and then calling you, commanding you to change, to repent, to turn from sin, turn unto me, walk in light. That's that's love. A little spit too, but that is love. I know you guys all see it, and you try it. I know you see it. Okay, so he loves us in spite of who we are. Oh, that's glory right there. He loves us in spite of who we are, and he desires for us to be holy. So salvation, beloved, is him freeing us from his condemnation against us, the condemnation that we're under because of our sin through Christ, through his sacrifice, and enabling us now to live for him. He sets us free from sin that we might live for him because he loves us. So he says, yes, come. Yes, that's right. Come as you are. Come repentantly. Come bow down. Come in faith, in repentance. Come and be changed. Be saved and be changed. Okay? That's the order. Not change yourself and then I'll save you because that can't happen because we don't have the power to change ourselves. We don't have the power to make ourselves acceptable to God. Jesus does that. But he not only does that, he empowers us now to live for God. You, you with me? All right. 1 Peter 1.14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So this instruction supports the command to be holy. Okay? It supports that command. So in order to be holy, you must not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You can't be holy if you're continuing to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So one translation puts it like this, like obedient children, do not comply with the evil urges you you used to follow in your ignorance. Okay? So before we knew God, assuming you you know him in a saving way, before we were saved... 
Uh, before we were regenerated, born again, before God made us new creatures in Christ, before God sovereignly called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, we, in our ignorance, were dominated and led about by our evil urges, our sinful passions and cravings, our lust. But now, as enlightened Christians, as obedient children, being called, saved, and empowered by God to live for Him and be like Him, we are not to be conformed to those passions any longer. That's it. It's interesting. The word translated conformed in 1 Peter 1.14, it's used in only one other place in the New Testament, that word. Used by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12.2. And the similarities between Romans and 1 Peter are many. But let me remind you of Romans 12 too, and what we said when we were there. And you'll see how these, these ideas connect. Do not be conformed to these evil urges that were yours in your ignorance. But here in Romans 12 too, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Remember we talked about that? Your mind is renewed as you give your mind to the Word of God and the Spirit of God convicts you of that Word and enables you to believe it and come under it and obey it. Do not be conformed. And I said then, when we looked at Romans 12 too, not being conformed means, the Word means not to let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Okay? Resist the world, not God. Let God squeeze you into his mold. Don't let the world squeeze you into its sinful mold. And it's the same thing. Do not let these evil urges that used to be yours in your ignorance, but you've been brought into the light now as a believer in Jesus Christ, don't let those things mold you. Don't let them conform you into the, the mold that they desire for you. Break out. Break free. You've been set free in Christ. Live as that new creature in Christ. And I, commenting on that passage in Romans 12 too, listen, just listen. A writer, a commentator had said that the world cannot and must not serve as a model for Christian living. Do you understand that? Huh? The world is hostile. Okay? The fallen world is hostile to Christianity, so that can't be your model. You know, if you're watching MTV to figure out how to live, uh, you're going to go bad quick. You're, you're going you're gonna to dishonor God. Its values and goals are antithetical to growth and holiness. Antithetical, they're the complete and exact opposite. Its goals and values. And then he said this, the church, that's us, should stand out from the world as a demonstration of God's intention for the human race. Gee, I wonder how that might happen. That would happen as the church lives in obedience to God's commands, as we find here in 1 Peter, to be holy, which is antithetical to all that the world has for us. They don't want us to be holy. They don't want us to be unrighteous. Beloved, do you, let me just ask you this. Think it through. Do you stand out from the world as a demonstration of God's intention for the human race? Think about that. Do you stand out as a demonstration of God's intention? What is his intention? Holiness. You're my people. I'm holy. Be holy. Do you stand out in this world as a demonstration of God's intention for the human race? Because that's why he saves people, that they might be holy. They might display him in all of his glory and wonder. Do you? Or is it hard to tell? Between you and the world. So here's a few things. You want to know the Tozer, you might know him, but he said this. One compromise here, another there, and soon enough, the so-called Christian and the man in the world look the same. 
They look the same. Little here, a little there. It doesn't take long, beloved, that you no longer stand out as demonstrating God's intention for the human race. And, you know, one of our, or not one of our goals, our goal is the making and multiplying of cross-centered disciples, right? That's Summit's goal? Because that's what God has called us to? Not because we just picked it out of the sky, but because we believe that's what God has called us to do? All right? So making disciples begins with evangelism, telling people about Christ. Nothing is, nothing undermines our evangelism more than unholiness. The church's testimony is marred, stained, when the church fails to strive to be holy. Because then we look just like the world. We're like, what do you have to offer me? Jesus? He's going to change my life? Apparently he hasn't changed yours. You're just like me. You live just like me. You look just like me. You speak just like me. You do the same things I do. You have the same struggles I have. You, you seem hopeless as well. Why would I want Jesus? So it undermines our evangelism. I like what this one uh, person said. He said this, There is nothing whatsoever surprising about sin. Holiness, however, it is the most surprising thing in the world. You want to have an impact evangelistically? Okay? Be holy. Don't just be holy, open your mouth and tell people about the holy God that you surrendered your life to, but be holy so that it makes sense. There's no inconsistencies or confusion in people's minds, but be holy, and you will, you will find people saying, what is, that is very different. Listen, if you sin, there's nothing different about that. That's what the world does. That's common. That's not shocking. I was just thinking about this, but let's just say you, you say, hey, uh, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, so have you guys slept together yet? And the Christian boyfriend says, no, we don't, we're not going to do that. Oh, you haven't had the opportunity yet? No, no, uh, we, don't, we don't do that. That's shocking, right? And then that gives that person an opportunity to say, uh, this, is, this is why we don't do that. Uh, hey, I mean, how many times has this happened to you at work? Uh, they basically ask you to lie about something. And you say, not in some haughty, self-righteous way, but you say, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. I cannot lie. What? What do you mean you can't lie? You're not loyal to the company? No, no I, I'll tell you why I can't lie. Do you see the, you want opportunities for evangelism? Be holy. They'll pop up all over the place because people will be like, you're a freak. There's something seriously wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me. Let me tell you, it's something glorious with me. Can I tell you about it? Uh, can I tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done in my life? Our evangelism is undermined. We lose opportunities for evangelism because we, we don't obey this command or we don't obey to the degree that we should. Also, let me say this. We need to be careful not to misunderstand grace, okay? To misunderstand grace in this call to be holy. So the grace of God is an amazing thing. Wow, without it, we'd be lost, right? Unmerited, undeserved favor of God poured out on us through Jesus Christ. Wow, okay? But grace does not somehow give us permission to sin. One writer said this, God's grace is not an excuse to sin, but rather a reason to love and serve Him more fully. I mean, if you're, if you're understanding grace, if you're getting it right in your head, that should be a motivating factor not to sin and say, it's okay, I'm covered but to live for the one who rescued you 
from the wrath that is to come, even though you didn't deserve it, and continues to sustain you in that salvation by his grace. And in fact, like I told you before, it's beautiful that Peter says, fix your hope fully on the, not the salvation, he uses the word grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that you're constantly reminded this great salvation that is coming for me because I am a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ is grace, grace and grace. I don't deserve any of it. As you meditate on those things, focus on those things, it will drive you, my friends. It will move you to surrender your life to God and live in obedience to him and be holy. God's grace is not an excuse to sin. It should be the motivating factor that drives you to obedience, to the one who extended such great grace to you and continues to give it to you and will bring it to you. You remember when we were in Romans 6, 1, Right? Remember what Paul says there? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Also, calling Christians to holiness or to be holy is not legalism. I mentioned this last week, but I want to say, I want to explain that. It's not legalism to call to, if it is, then we've got a problem. Because legalism's not good, it's bad. So is Peter being legalistic? Is God legalistic? No, it's not legalism. Um, there's a definition of legalism that I really like. It's in that little book that we hand out to those who intern to formal membership here called The Cross-Centered Life by Mahaney. And here's his definition, I like it. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. Let me say it again. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. Beloved, we find acceptance from God and forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ. It's a gift. It's just given to us. It's faith in Him. It comes. We have it. It's there, right there. We find it there. We relish that, okay? But legalism is now not that, but trying to get that through through obedience, through what I do. That's legalism. So, The person who is pursuing holiness could be doing it in a legalistic way. They're not doing it because they're they're overwhelmed by the grace that they have from God and the great salvation and all the wonder of that and then move to be obedient, giving themselves to this one who gave themselves for them. No, they're doing it because they're trying to get favor with God, favor that they already have in Jesus Christ. That's legalism. Okay? So it, a person pursuing holiness could be doing it legalistically. That would be wrong. That would honor God. But just to be clear, a call to holiness is not legalism. We are to be holy. Live morally upright lives as God has defined it. Here's some help. I thought I might give you a little help in the area of holiness. And specifically, not conforming to the evil urges of your former nature, okay? You guys want some help? Because I need help, (laughs) all right? Because there ain't no perfect people here. There ain't no glorified people here. One day. One day. But right now, we're wrestling through this, hopefully. Hopefully, you're wrestling through it. Hopefully, you are striving for holiness and not just like, ah, whatever. Because there's something wrong with that attitude. Something seriously wrong needs to be repented of, for sure. But here's some help. I found some quotes. I thought they were helpful. So let me share them with you, make a few comments. This is by an old pastor named Spurgeon. He said this, Look to the cross and hate your sin, for sin nailed your well-beloved to the tree. We're fond of our sin so often having a love affair with it. You need to look to the cross. That sin you're indulging in, that sin you're, you're giving room in your life to manifest itself, that sin nailed your Savior to the tree. You say you love Him? And then you dwell and live in your sin freely, openly, rebelliously? Not possible. You love your sin, you don't love Him. 
You love him. You look to the cross. You remember what he has done for you. It was sin that took him to the cross. Not a bunch of Roman soldiers. Sin drove him there. He went willingly for your sin, for mine. That very sin that we find ourselves delighting in, that's disgusting. We need to see it differently. See it for what it is. It killed our Savior. So I found that to be helpful. Find it to be helpful. Look to the cross. How about this? The way to really beat sin is not to whip it out, but to sow glory in Christ that sleaze looks dirty. See? You start to glory in Christ. You start to keep your eyes fixed on Him, to meditate on Him. All of a sudden, in all of His brilliance and beauty, you really begin to see the ugliness of sin, of unrighteousness, how dirty it is. But if you're wallowing around in sin and your eyes aren't fixed on Christ, then sin looks normal to you. It doesn't look that bad. And here's the thing, in our fallen nature, our minds are working overtime to try to justify it. It's not that bad. Everyone does it. Yeah. Generally speaking, everyone does it in the world. That's true. But you, child of God, called out to be God's, set, pulled out of the darkness and into the light, I have called you to be holy. See sin for what it is. It's disgusting. It's vile. It's wicked. It's an offense to me, God. And my son, I had to surrender my son in order to deal with it. I had to pour all my wrath on him because of it. Spurgeon again. The more holy a man becomes, the more he will loathe and mourn over the remains of indwelling sin. What he means is as we grow in our sanctification and we become more morally upright as we are trusting in the gospel and relying on the power of the Spirit and applying God's Word in our lives, our lives manifest more and more the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of the Spirit that indwells us. Okay, And as one does that, they, they begin to either not, not only become more sensitive to the sin in their life, but they begin to hate it even more. As they go closer to the light, the darkness is, becomes more clear dark to them. They see it for what it is. Uh, I think one of the reasons many of us don't really loathe or mourn over our sin is because we're not in the pursuit of holiness. If we were in the pursuit of holiness and growing in holiness, what generally happens is that person becomes more committed to getting rid of indwelling sin, to saying no to, to, uh, to it, to repenting from it, to turning from it. So you want help in this area? Pursue holiness. And as you pursue holiness, your desire, your heart, your affections will change more and more so that you hate sin. You no longer love it in your life. You see it for the ugliness that it is. Pursue righteousness. Look to the cross. Gaze on Christ. And here, one more. The ultimate tragedy of sin is not that it spoils my life. That is a tragedy. Disrupts my relationships. It does that. Scars my world. That too. That's not the ultimate tragedy. But here it is. It dishonors, defies, and disgraces my God. It it dishonors, defies, and disgraces my God. Really, that is the ultimate wrong. When I, when I allow myself to be conformed to my previous passions that were mine and my ignorance when I was not a saved man, yeah, it brings problems into my life. Yeah, it disrupts my relationships. Yeah, it may scar my world. But worse than all of that, it dishonors, defies, and disgraces my God, the one I say I love. And I do love him. And when I consider those things, then then I see my sin differently. I don't want to disgrace my God. I don't want to defy him. I don't want to dishonor him. First Peter 1.15. Wow, we're almost done. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Quickly, all your conduct, right? All your conduct. NIV says all you do. Be holy in all you do. You know what that means? No compartmentalizing, okay? So that means no dividing things up into separate areas or compartments in your life. 
So every area of your life is to be conformed to the holiness of God. Might I say, every day of your life is to be conformed to the holiness of God and, 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 to, and to be lived out in holy conduct. Every day, not just Sunday, but Monday and Tuesday, but certainly every area of your life. So uh, you must have a commitment. You must be committed to moral integrity, purity. So, for instance, marriage, in your marriage, you are to pursue holiness huh? in your marriage. So whatever that looks like, as the Bible describes moral integrity, purity in that area, certainly that would include not committing adultery. Certainly that would include not looking at pornography. Right? Certainly that would include not flirting with the secretary at work. Certainly that would include serving my wife and loving her. Certainly that would include as a wife respecting my husband. That's holiness. That's moral uprightness. That's living for God in my marriage, right? But it's not just my marriage. This would apply to parenting as fathers, mothers, business, work, friendships, your speech. Christians, come on. Look, I don't get rid of uh, cuss language just because uh, other Christians don't speak that way, so I need to learn how to speak like Christians. I am to stop speaking filthfully, maybe not a word, stop using foul, disgusting language, because my God has called me to be holy in everything I do, which includes with my tongue. Huh? Right. Public life, private life, your thought life, your feelings, your leisure. If you're le- so that's what I mean by compartmentalizing. So in my leisure, I can be unholy, but in my business, I'm holy. And maybe we don't say that, but often that is what happens. Like, I get to take a vacation from God now. No, what are you talking about? There's no vacation from God. Be holy in all your conduct. So even in your leisure, you are to be thinking, as I'm fixing my hope on the grace that is to come, I am to be holy in all my conduct. Be holy in your internet browsing. That's what it means, guys, in all that you do. Repentance should be a way of life for the Christian, which means turning and running away from our sin and turning to and running towards God's righteousness. Be holy in all that you do. And uh, one writer points out that though absolute holiness can never be achieved in this life, every area of our life should be in the process of becoming completely conformed to God's perfect and holy will as we find it right here in His Word. Finally, one writer says this, the command to be holy indicates that the pilgrim people of God are to live differently. We're pilgrims. We're on our way to that place. We're a passing through. We're to live differently, beloved. We're to, we're to live holy. They are to live in a way that pleases God, conforming their lives to God's very character. I had several other passages. We're not going to look at them. We'll close with this, with that. But hope and holiness. God has called us and saved us that we might soar for Him that we might truly live for Him in a way that honors and glorifies Him. And using an illustration people have used before for other things, think of hope and holiness like two wings of an airplane. You need them both to fly, okay? One without the other is no good. You just have hope and no holiness, that's not good. And if you just have holiness without hope, it begins to become a burden, really, like a task. There's no motivating thing driving you to to obedience and to live in this holiness. You need both hope and holiness. And if you have both of them, you'll soar for God. You'll honor Him. You'll glorify Him. And beloved, if you're a Christian, is that not what you want to do? And if you don't want to do that, you need to rethink what you are. If you don't have any desire to honor and live for the Lord, to glorify Him with your life, you may not be a believer. You, you likely are not. You're not a follower in Jesus Christ. You haven't been reborn. Or you're in a really bad place. You need to repent right now. This text needs to be burned into the thinking of our minds, beloved. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and I ask your blessing on it. I, and your blessing in our lives, Father, help us to, uh, to really think through these things and think further about them and then make changes. Father, might we do that? Might we not put this away or make excuses for why we don't need to change or try to talk ourselves out of obedience, Father? I pray that we would not do that, that we would just bring ourselves under your word. Father, how much, how many problems do we bring into our lives because we, we won't, or we don't conform to these things, we, we don't fix our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we fail in, in maybe some areas of our life, or just generally to be holy, it's not even, it doesn't even come on our radar, we're not even thinking about those things, and because of that, what a mess we make of our lives and, and of other lives, but more importantly than that, the dishonor that we bring you. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We want to live for you, Father. May we commit ourselves, even now, right now, to doing that very thing as we desire to submit to these two commands. In Christ's name, amen.